So this podcast recording is related to alterations in circulation for the pediatric patient population. The first slide, um, if you're using your PowerPoint, it just talks to, to you about the areas for listening for heart sounds. And so one of the mnemonics is All People Enjoy Time magazine. So you're doing your aortic, pulmonic, your herbs point, tricuspid valve, and mitral valve. And also, as you're auscultating heart sounds, you may see in a report, or you may record this as a nurse yourself, that S1 is the loudest at the apex, and then S2 is the loudest at the base. So um, that's where you would find your S1 and S2. Also, another mnemonic for auscultating heart sounds would be ape to man. Same thing, aortic, pulmonic, tricuspid, and mitral Normal heart sounds, S1 would be a lub, and then S2 would be a dub. So when you hear lub, dub consistently, those are normal heart sounds. Heart sounds that vary could be you're hearing lubby or dubby, or you could be hearing a very loud murmur if there's a cardiac defect on a patient. In pediatrics, when we have heart murmurs, we um, go further and study to find out what exactly is causing that murmur. A lot of times a kid could be very dehydrated and we might hear a murmur. And as we give them boluses to rehydrate them, the murmur goes away. Or there could be a murmur at birth and the physicians decide just to follow the baby and see if that murmur goes away. Um, other things would be um, things that cause uh, a spasm or something. So it could be the uh, stenosis of a valve, could be partial obstruction, an aortic regurgitation, a mitral regurgitation, or a septal defect. There are pictures of what a normal heart looks like, and then there's also the picture of what the blood flow through the cardiac valves should be, and it's um, the mnemonic would be tissue paper my assets. So you have your tricuspid, pulmonic, mitral, and aortic valves. There are videos to show you the normal heart, and then there's also a video to show you about fecal, fetal, I'm sorry, fetal circulation video. And then the anatomy and physiology for um, pediatrics and babies, we expect the ductus arteriosus to close shortly after birth. Sometimes it could take up to three days to close after birth, but um, if, in that case, if that's happening, we follow the baby to make sure that they're having no complications. So um, especially once the cord is clamped, we expect that ductus arteriosus to close as they are transitioning to life outside of the womb. When you are assessing a patient for their cardiac function, this is very important, especially if the baby is newborn or they were born with an um, expected cardiac defect that was seen on ultrasound. Um, we will be talking to the parent or the caregiver and finding out how are they doing what is their feeding pattern? Are they able to feed normally? Are they having difficulty? Do they get tired and stop feeding? Um, and then we'll look at them for their weight gain. If they haven't gained any weight, we consider them failure to thrive. Some babies end up, um, after they birth weight, they're lower. And so we notice that because of the demand of the cardiac system on the baby's body, they have lost weight. Are they having any respiratory symptoms? 
Do their lungs sound like they have fluid on them? Are they um, grunting? Are they having any signs of work of breathing, retractions or anything like that? Um, Do we see cyanosis, especially orally or on the tip of the nose? Is that turning blue when they cry or when they try to eat? Um, With the older kids, we ask about exercise intolerance. So that would mean if they are running around playing with someone their same age or their peers, and then they start to fall back because they're so tired and then they can't continue to play. Are there any family histories of cardiac defects or um, cardiac issues? Are, are we working this child up for a syndrome? Would there be a chromosomal anomaly going on? Has there been a recent strep infection? Sometimes after about two weeks after a strep infection, this child could show symptoms of having um, decreased cardiac function because now the strep infection has um, infected the valves. Is this child sweating with a baby, we ask? Are you having to change the outfit when you pick them up, especially after a nap? Is there a ring of sweat where you also have to change the linen? And with the older kids, we ask the same. Are they having to change their clothing to, um, you know, often because they're sweating so much? With the assessment for the nurse, when you're assessing the patient, you're going to definitely look at your vital signs. If you have this patient on a monitor, you'll see what the monitor reading is. Is it showing tachycardia or bradycardia? Or when you listen, are you seeing tach- are you hearing tachycardia or bradycardia? Is the patient tachypnic? If a patient has a respiratory rate greater than 60, as we talked about before, in the respiratory system, um, we will not feed them. So they'll need to be NPO for an increased respiratory rate. Are we noticing any hypertension? This is a lot of times the first time a child has ever had their blood pressure taken is when they come in for an assessment to be worked up for a cardiac defect. Or maybe the physician has said to take the blood pressure in all four extremities and you have different blood pressure readings in all four extremities. Um, When we put them on the O2 monitor, is their oxygen saturation low? Then we look at their extremities what are we seeing with their extremities? We start to look at the color. Do they look um, pale, mottled, um, that kind of thing? Do they feel cool to the touch? And then also the pulses. Are the pulses differing? Are they the same? Are they weakened? And when we auscultate the heart, do we hear a murmur? Do we hear a gallop? Do we hear varying heart sounds? This other slide talks about head-to-toe cardiac clues, especially if you have an older child or an adolescent, an adult, um, looking at them from head-to-toe. Do they have brittle hair? Do their eyes look like they're um, yellowed or orange? Also, looking at their lips and their tongue, do you see any blue? Do they seem like they're very dehydrated? Looking at the jugular vein, is it distended? When we auscultate the chest, when we're listening to the lungs, do we hear any crackles or rails? Or um, do we hear murmurs? What does the blood pressure look like? Is it high? Is it low? What does the abdomen look like? Do we see an enlarged abdomen? Um, And then with the skin, is it dry? What is the color of the skin? What does it 
feel like? Is it cool to touch? Do they feel clammy? Um, checking the sacrum for any areas of edema. Looking at the nails and the nails beds. Are the nail beds blue? indicating cyanosis or do we see clubbing which would indicate a chronic issue with o2 saturation being low um, the lower extremities what do the legs feel like what does the color what are the pulses and then um, looking at the feet and ankles do we see any edema on the toddler kids because a lot of times their kids have um, the rubberized hem around them and also the socks, you're gonna take off the socks and pull up the pants and see if there's an indention uh, in the where the clothing was to, and that would indicate some type of edema. So we have our congenital heart defect symptoms. You have um, a lot of times a kid will present with increased respirations such as work of breathing, you know, just really increased respiratory rate. They may have an increased pulse um, they will be failure to thrive. And a lot of times it's very obvious that this child is small for their age. You may have dyspnea or orthopnea. You could have uh, the, uh, the parent telling you that the child is tired all the time. And also that there are um, symptoms of an upper respiratory infection all the time. This child usually has a, a runny nose, a cough all the time. Um, the thing that stands out for me with cardi uh, congenital cardiac defects would be that there are 35 different types, but there are four categories. So your four categories would be patent ductus arteriosus, tetralogy of Fallot, coarctation of the aorta, and transposition of the great vessels. A lot of times these disorders cause congestive heart failure. So congestive heart failure can be corrected with medication or, or surgery once we fix the defect. So um, it is also a cause, I'm sorry, congenital heart defects also are the most common cause of why, why a child would be in congestive heart failure. So um, we try to figure out if this child comes in and is having symptoms of congestive heart failure that we didn't know before had some type of known cardiac defect, what can we do to help this uh, resolve this problem? So um, signs and symptoms or how the child would present would be if it's a baby, they're tired all the time and they're not feeding. So the parents are having to wake, the parents or caregivers are having to wake this baby up to feed them. And also, are they sweaty? Do they seem irritable all the time? Um, another in, big indication would be that they are not gaining weight or that they have lost weight. And then are they having frequent infections such as upper respiratory infections? Also, when we look at them, they will have symptoms of respiratory distress They'll have some nasal flaring, retractions. They'll have grunting, tachypnea. You'll listen and you'll hear some crackles going on. And then um, the physician might order a chest X-ray, which would show cardiomegaly, like an enlarged heart on the chest X-ray. Um, we'll notice tachycardia with them, the cyanosis, especially around the lips and the um, tip of the nose. Their pulses will be weakened and their um, blood pressure would be decreased and they would have heart murmur and cool extremities. Um, as I talked before, the physician would order a chest x-ray. The physician would also order 
an echo to definitively diagnose that there is actually something going on with the heart. The nurse would need to do a thorough head-to-toe assessment, including the respiratory system, and document it very carefully. And also, once this child is diagnosed, we would be teaching the parents about um, exactly what they're diagnosed with and then what the medications are and how this patient is going to be treated to help with this congestive heart failure. Um, in, in nursing, they do give medications and they need to increase the contractility of the heart to get some of the fluid off. So they may also administer digoxin to help with that. And then furosemide, which is Lasix. So the digoxin would increase the contractility of the heart and the Lasix would help get the fluids off. So we need to get the fluid off, unload fast. Um, so that is part of the, um, therapeutic regimen for these kids. So we keep them also in an upright position to help get those fluids off and to help with the um, chest expansion and the breathing. And then we'll decrease some fluids. We will restrict their diet as far as sodium is concerned. And then they will also have frequent labs to check and make sure that they're doing okay. Um, and for feeding, especially with an infant, we have to retrain the parents or the caregiver how to feed. There will be um, feeding strategy, strategies. A lot of times um, occupational therapists will work with the parent and the baby to help with this. But we would put the baby in an area where it's not a whole lot of activity going on. So in a type of quiet, relaxed environment, keeping the baby upright. And also if it's in the hospital or they may go home from the hospital with supplemental oxygen. So if it seems like they're really, really struggling during their feeding, we can have a little bit of supplemental oxygen to turn on to help them. And they will be given a time limit to take their feeding. So usually it's they're fed more frequent, smaller meals. So we'll do um, 30 minutes. Going back to feeding strategies for infants, we're gonna feed them small meals more frequently. So it would be allowing them 30 minutes for every feeding every three hours. If the patient is unable to take in the formula or the fortified breast milk within the 30 minutes, then they'll get a nasogastric tube to finish the feeding. So when, when I'm talking about fortified breast milk or also formula, the nutritionists work with the patient and their weight and they will concentrate the formula for it. So they're getting more calories per ounce. And this helps with the baby's weight gain to prepare them for surgery. And it also helps to decrease the work for the baby um, for taking in a large amount of formula. They're just going to be taking in smaller amounts of formula with higher calories. While we're feeding, we're monitoring for intolerance. So are they getting more sweaty? Do they seem to be getting tired? Are they working harder to breathe? Do they um, vomit? So if this is going on, we need to come up with a different feeding strategy. And as I said, some of it would be adding supplemental oxygen to help them while they're feeding. Um, also, it could just be that they make the patient NPO and go ahead and give the complete feeding uh, via the nasogastric tube. So we have categories of defects, the defects that increase pulmonary blood flow, de uh, defects that decrease your pulmonary blood flow, 
obstructive or mixed defects, and then you have your acquired um, heart disease or defects. So with disorders that increase the pulmonary blood flow, the patient would not be blue. A lot of times um, they won't have any issues. They'll look normally on the outside. And then we might notice, especially right after birth, that we're hearing um, murmurs and, and things such as that. So acyanotic congenital heart defects or defects, acyanotic means that they're not turning blue, would be your patent ductus arteriosus, your atrial septal defect, and your ventricular septal defect. So with these patients, you will hear a cardiac murmur. They will have um, failure to thrive. Also, they will have increased fatigue where they're sleeping a lot and they will have congestive heart failure. Okay, so um, you can read the definition of an atrial septal defect, but it is a defect in the septum wall. And this is the wall that divides the right and the left atria. This is a congenital problem and it does require a surgical repair or a cardiac catheter procedure early on as as soon as we can to um, fix this defect and usually it's a good prognosis with these children and there's a video in here showing you about um, atrial septal defect now a ventricular septal defect would be a defect in the septum wall that divides the right and the left um, ventricles this is also a congenital problem and it is caught mixed there's it causes the blood to mix oxygenated and deoxygenated this child will have congestive heart failure and it also could cause endocarditis we definitely need a surgical repair for this and if we get find it early the prognosis is good but this one could if it's happening with other defects such as tetralogy of fallot it could be fatal and you have your picture and your video of your, the VSD. Patent ductus arteriosus is a condition that happens when the ductus arteriosus doesn't close or closes improperly after birth. And this um, increases fluid to the lungs in the left side of the heart. So this patient would also have congestive heart failure. We treat this with endomethacin, which is a medication that's in the class of NSAIDs. So... Um, a lot of times we'll give them endomethacin IV, hoping that it will induce closure. The thing that we have to be careful with with this medication is that if the baby has not had anything on their stomach, it could cause them to have a perforation in their bowel. So because it is an NSAID and it's hard on the intestinal tract. So we try to administer something to protect the stomach before we give the medication. If the medication doesn't work, then they will need to go to the cardiac cath lab to have a PDA ligation. And once this treatment happens, the patient does have a good prognosis of recovery. And you have your picture and your video of patent ductus arteriosus. Now we have defects that will decrease the pulmonary blood flow. And this patient will be cyanotic, so the patient will turn blue. And those defects are your tetralogy of Fallot and your tricuspid atresia. You will notice these patients having fainting spells. They will turn blue. They will squat, just um, instinctually squat when they feel like they're about to pass out. 
um, and they will have clubbing of the fingers and toes a lot of times. With Tetralogy of Fallot, it means four. So it's a very complex condition. These patients are often very, very sick, very medically complicated. The defect has to be fixed in stages and they stay in the hospital for a very long time. So the four defects in Tetralogy of Fallot would be your ventricular septal defect, pulmonic stenosis, an overriding aorta, and right ventricular hypertrophy. So um, as I said, this patient is very, very sick. We have blood mixing um, in and out of both ventricles, and um, it's very hard to keep them stabilized once they are out of the womb and transitioning to life. So I talked about how they turn cyanotic. So they call that tet spells or blue spells, especially when the baby is very upset and crying, they will turn really, really blue. Um, and they also have failure to thrive. You'll definitely hear a large murmur there. And this baby is always tired as well as very irritable. Um, for treatment of Tetralogy of Fallot, we try to start with getting them to a good size and weight before we do our first surgery. And as I said, these surgeries are done in phases. So um, they will start to repair once the baby gets a certain weight and then um, we'll put a patch over the ventricular septal defect and then start going from there and hopefully their baby has no complications such as infection or um, cardiac events. Pulmonic stenosis. Stenosis is a stiffening of the pulmonic valves. Stenosis means stiffening. Um, this patient would be asymptomatic or they could be cyanotic. It depends on um, if they have this condition with other cardiac conditions. They will have congestive heart failure. Um, if we, if it's just pulmonic stenosis, they usually have a pretty good outcome. If this is found with Tetralogy of Fallot, then we um, monitor them, we worry about them, and we will do the, um, try to fix the pulmonic stenosis as soon as possible. Defects with mixed pulmonary blood flow would be your four T's. So you have your tetralogy of Fallot, your tricuspid atresia, and then you have transposition of the great arteries and truncus arteriosus. Things that um, decrease your pulmonary blood flow would be your tetralogy of Fallot and your tricuspid atresia. Things where you have your mixed blood flow would be your transposition of great arteries and your truncus arteriosus. So transposition of the great arteries is where the arteries are just switched and we need to fix them back. So basically, if you think about it, is the plumbing of the heart is messed up. So we have to do a switch procedure to fix the um, plumbing to make the blood flow go correctly. With this disorder, you will have um, increased work of breathing, respiratory distress. The patient will be cool and clammy. They'll see an enlarged heart on the x-ray. Heart sounds will vary and um, they will be cyanotic. So as I said, in order to fix this, we'll have to do the switch procedure. Um, truncus arteriosus is just where the pulmonary artery and the aorta fail to separate during fetal development. So it's just one big arch there. And then we need to send this patient to the OR because it requires a surgical intervention. 
and um, they will need to be um, fixed. So if they have also in combination a large ventricular septal defect, this sometimes is left that way until they can fix the truncus arteriosus so that the baby has better chances of survival. You have your obstructive defects, which is where the blood flow can't get out to the body. And your coarctation of the aorta. Coarctation means narrowing, so you have narrowing of the aorta. This patient would definitely have signs of congenital heart failure, and their extremities would be, the pulses and the blood pressures would be different in all extremities. So your upper, you would have an increased blood pressure, you would have bounding pulses, and in the lower part, you would have uh, weak pulses, cool, clammy skin, mottled look to the skin, and then a decrease in blood pressure. This patient we watch very carefully because they are at risk to have a stroke or an aneurysm. Usually this procedure, um, this, I'm sorry, disorder is taken into consideration and the patient goes to a cardiac cath for the, to get, for the procedure to help fix this. Or if it's a bigger issue or they're really worried about the patient being more stable, they will take them to the OR to fix this one. And once they're fixed, they do have a very good prognosis. Um, hypoplastic left heart syndrome is hypoplastic. Hypo is under. So the patient, the left side of the heart is underdeveloped. And this one causes higher mortality rates in patients. And a lot of times it's because um, we can't, there needs to be a heart transplant. Sometimes they can give them a left ventricular assist device, but a lot of times they are worked up for a cardiac transplant right away. And the reason why this could potentially happen is because the baby might have a congenital diaphragmatic hernia and that herniation has went through the diaphragm up into the left side where the heart should have been developing during fetal development. And now there's just a lobe there or a little bud where the heart should have developed. Um, this patient is whisked away right away at birth, taken to the intensive care unit and put on a ventilator and all types of different drips for, to keep them alive and support their body. Um, and... As I said, they will definitely need a heart transplant. Also, we have to explain to the parents that if they get a transplant in five to 10 years, they will need to be worked up for another heart. And then we have the risk of them rejecting the organ and things like that. So um, this involves a lot to fix this one. Acquired heart diseases would be like a cardiomyopathy. Sometimes we don't really know why the patient has a cardiomyopathy, which is um, affects the muscles of the heart, but it could be from a viral infection that happened and then it just um, went into the heart muscle. Um, sometimes it could be uh, we knew that they had some other issue with their heart and then now it's car uh, it could be an it could have been a genetic issue, and now they're facing cardiomyopathy. Um, there could it could be nutritional deficiencies. A lot of times, kids who are having eating disorder issues would have um, a cardiomyopathy, and then chemotherapy is an, could be another cause of why a child would have cardiomyopathy. But overall, the cause is unknown. We just um, work work to treat the symptoms as best we can. 
So they will be given medication. We try to medicate them to increase the, um, the work of the heart to help it pump more efficiently. And then we want to give them medication to prevent them from having clots. And we want to decrease the inflammation in the heart and also correct the irregular heartbeats. Another acquired heart disease would be your rheumatic fever. This usually happens between two and six weeks after they've had a strep infection. And also it affects the aortic and mitral valves. Um, and this is a lifelong situation where a patient would need to be followed. Diagnostically, how do we find out that this is going on? We'll do like an echocardiogram. And also we do some blood work and we'll find out that they have the um, elevated ESR and then the elevated strep um, anti-streptolysin titer. So clinically, this patient would come in, have a rash. They would be complaining of joint pain. They would be very tachycardic even at rest or while they're sleeping. They will have irregular involuntary muscle movements and then um, fever and nodules over bony prominences in their body. So um, they would be talking about having chest pain and just be really, really sick and not feeling well. And how do we treat this? As I said, we treat their symptoms. So we um, put them on bed rest. We try to cluster our nursing care. We are keeping them constantly monitored to see if they're going to go into further cardiac distress or not. We give them anticoagulation medications and anti-inflammatory medications, including aspirin. And then also they will be on antibiotic prophylaxis. So this, as I said, could be a lifelong situation where they may have to have their uh, valves replaced. So the antibiotic prophylaxis is if they don't have any signs and symptoms of cardiac issues, they'll take the antibiotic for five years or until they reach the age of 21 to 25. If they do have or are considered to have rheumatic heart disease, cardiac symptoms, they will take the antibiotic for 10 years or until they reach age 40. Um, Kawasaki's disease would be your next acquired heart disease, and that is considered generalized vasculitis. So that means all the vasculature bed is inflamed and it's very painful. And there's a lot of irritation that goes on to, with this. So you'll have basically from head to toe issues. You'll have the eyes will hurt. The whites of the eyes will look redden, almost like they have pink eye. They will have um, red swollen palms and soles of their feet. So they're not going to want to walk. Their mouth is very inflamed, the lip and the inside of their mouth. So they're not swallowing. They don't want to eat. Their throat hurts. They'll have a very high fever. The lymph nodes in the neck will be swollen. And then they have um, other issues where they're just very uncomfortable. And of course, because they're not eating and drinking, they are dehydrated. So we have to start an IV and rehydrate them. What we worry about with these kids are um, aneurysms. So they are given an echocardiogram at least once or twice during their stay and also followed in the cardiac clinic. Sometimes if they're really severe with Kawasaki's disease, we will give them a treatment of um, IV immunoglobulin to help decrease some of the symptoms. And um, as I said, they will be followed long-term. If they 
are recovered from Kawasaki's disease and they get sick a little bit later, they um, need to go back into the cardiac clinic just to be worked up and make sure they're not having any other problems. So Kawasaki's disease is the major cause of heart disease in children in the United States. The reason why this is higher ranked than congestive heart failure is because we can fix the congestive heart failure with medication or surgery, but we can't fix the Kawasaki's disease. We just treat their symptoms and follow them for life, okay? So there's a little picture about Kawasaki's disease and it gives you the little cartoon gives you um, everything that's going on with this patient. And usually we do see this in children younger than five years old, but we have had kids come in um, who are nine, 10 years old or a little bit older. So, and then I'll look at, I'll ask you to look at the slide for the diagnostic criteria. So usually these are the things that we see with the patients and um, there are some films there. And my next slide would be shock. And so um, I want you to know about the four different categories of shock, just your basic definitions. You'll need hypovolemic, cardiogenic, obstructive, and distributive shock. A lot of times we see hypovolemic and cardiogenic shock in children more than any other. So with your hypovolemic shock is just volume loss. Are they hemorrhaging or are they having some type of GI upset where they're vomiting and diarrhea a lot? Are they, do they have um, diabetes insipidus, which is a condition that causes them to urinate and, a lot and have uh, blood loss? Or was it some type of injury? So what we need to do with this one is we need to um, figure out a way to get them volume back, whether it's by giving them blood or by giving them IV fluids. And then um, cardiogenic shock is the inability of the heart to function properly. So we need to find out what is causing this. Is it some type of uh, defect in the heart? Is it they're having some type something put them into an arrhythmia? What are we going to do with this? So we need to do medication and monitor them very closely to see what we need to, how can we fix this? A lot of times this happens with kids who are being worked up for surgery and, you know, their heart can't take anymore. So then we end up putting them on more medication, more drips to keep their, help their heart keep up with the demands of their body. Um, and then you have your obstructive shock, which is just, there's something there obstructing the blood flow or it's obstructing the function of the heart. And there's a video here. It's about 20 minutes about shock in general.